The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I was inspired to put together this presentation when I first saw the very first PowerPoint that was put together for the first International Bhikkhuni Day in 2011. Um, I had been meditating at that point for almost 25 years, and I had never heard this history. Um, And I was really inspired to see what I could come up with to make this information more available. Um, The presentation really comes from a very deep respect of the monastic sangha and how the monastic sangha has um, dedicated their lives to keeping the Dhamma alive. Um, But as the Buddha reminds us with his vision of the fourfold sangha, it not only takes a monastic sangha, but it takes a lay sangha also to support the monastic sangha, to feed them, to read the books, to print the books, um, and all of that. So it really takes a fourfold sangha to keep the Dhamma alive through these 2,600 years and to bring us here today to listen to this. Um, In the West, many of us have been introduced to the Dhamma through many wonderful lay teachers. And the monastic Sangha has kind of taken, for some, a disconnect. um, and hasn't taken the same place that it has in Asia. Um, So my hope for this presentation, and this is about the 26th time, 24th, 25th, 26th time that I presented this, And I continually am amazed at the the people show up, first of all, (laughs) that people are interested, and that there is feedback as to the spark of interest that it really does um, ignite in people around the monastic sangha, or the spark of, of understanding around the monastic sangha and what that can mean to um, the Buddhist teachings in present day. So we know that um, the Bhikkhuni Sangha appeared in the Buddhist time around 2,500 years ago, around 2,600 years ago. It existed for 1,500 years, and then it disappeared. And about 30 years ago, it, it reappeared and became revitalized. Uh, the story of the Bhikkhuni order begins with Mahapajapati. And you have a wonderful image of Mahapajapati. Of course, just like the Buddha, this is one image that was drawn by a woman in Oregon. And here's another image of Mahapajapati that you have at your center. Um, just as the Buddha, we don't really know what they look like, but we can create images of them that evoke that feeling of um, the, the kind of um, feeling that um, we get from thinking about them. So Mahapajapati was the Buddha's stepmother and aunt, and there's a wonderfully dramatic story in the Pali Canon about Mahapajapati and her 500 followers asking the Buddha for ordination three times but being refused each time. And... Um, There's a lot of inconsistencies and historical contradictions in this story. Um, And recently, 
uh, Analio Biku, has done some extraordinary research with other contemporary tests and has come up with another version of the story. Did you want to add something? Yeah, so in, in, the, in the Pali canon, which is the, what, what we inherit as Theravada Buddhists, the, the story is quite... Um, derogatory really and, and as, as we uh, as, as a monastic entering the monastic life we basically inherit a story that says because we want to ordain we are now the cause of the monastic sangha being uh, like dying out much sooner and it even says things like that the, the bikini sangha it, it, the fact that there is a bikini sangha is like a blight on the sangha like a mildew on the sangha we get these, this awful kind of legacy so you come into the sangha with great faith and I wish to renounce just as men come in the same. It's the heart's response. And, and yet we get met with this message that uh, we are inherently by our existence uh, a problem. So Venerable Analio has um, researched, for, spent many years actually trying to understand what is, where does this come from? What is this, what is this about? Because it doesn't fit with the, with, other, with, with, with the basic orientation of the Buddha, wisdom and compassion. And it also doesn't fit with other places in the suttas. Uh, so uh, his understanding is that, he, that he, there was a concern for women in India, it would be the same now actually, women in India travelling alone, wandering alone as the monks do, that a concern for their safety, they may get raped, they may get killed or harmed. And so he understands it that the Buddha was saying, don't, uh, don't go forth, don't, uh, wear the robe, shave your head, wear the robe. So this, this, that line comes up in, in contemporary scriptures that, that are, of the same story that don't come up in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says, shave your head, put on the robe and stay at home and practice so that you realize the fruit of awakening. Whereas in the Pali Canon it, it doesn't say, it, it, it skips that line where, he, where the Buddha is saying, shave your head, wear the robe. He's just saying, no, you can't go forth. So, Venerable um, Analia is um, surmising that the Buddha is saying, don't wander, because if you wander, you could be raped, and that could halve your life as a nun. In, in, you, know, you, you may not anymore, you may have too much doubt. You know, maybe you're not sure if you've kept all the rules because you were raped, and then you, have I broken a, a heavy rule? Or you may get pregnant, and then you, you can't stay as a nun. So he understands it that the Buddha is saying, don't wander, don't put yourself at risk by wandering like the monks wander, stay at home, practice at home, and then you'll realize the fruit of awakening. And it's a very different slant to what we inherit as Theravadans in the Pali Canon. And, yeah. But the story continues that Mahapajapati and her followers... Who are women, 500 women. 500 women. <laughs> in the Pali Canon, when they say 500, they mean a lot of people, mm -hmm. right? So... Um, all of her women followers um, did go home, shave their heads, put on robes. And when the Buddha left for a long trip, she said, come on, let's follow them. And followed them, uh, proving their willingness to brave the conditions of homing ho homeless life. And when the Buddha saw them, he realized that they did have a capacity um, to, and a keenness to face the difficulties of homeless life. And he invited them to... Um, to join the, the order. And this was uh, something like 230 miles walking on foot, so it's not a short distance. Yeah. So I think he, they proved themselves. Yeah. And um, so the Bhikkhuni order was um, established by the Buddha about five years after the Bhikkhu order was established in the 6th century BC. 
So whichever story we follow, the Pali Canon or the research from Analio Bhikkhu, we know that Mahapajapati was one of the first strong bhikkhuni leaders. Um, she brought many women into the Sangha from the get-go. So it was a strong order with a lot of followers. And um, the Buddha, not so much in his time, but later on when the position of women shifted in society, the fact that women were in the order, in the Sangha, created a kind of controversial stance for the position of women in spiritual life. Um, at first, the bhikkhunis received upasampada, or ordination, from the bhikkhu sangha only. And historically, this is an important point to remember. Um, the ordination of the bhikkhu sangha, first they received ordination from the Buddha, and then the Buddha gave the bhikkhus um, permission to ordain the bhikkhuni sangha. And it continued for some time until there was a case of a candidate who was shy and was unable to answer the series of questions which are asked at a can of the candidate at the beginning of the ceremony. And these questions are really private and it caused her embarrassment and uh, to have to answer the questions to a male bhikkhu. So the case was brought to the Buddha and out of compassion he said, I think it's time since we have like a critical mass of bhikkhunis now, I think it's time for the bhikkhunis to enter into the ordination process. Um, and so the bhikkhuni sangha alone then gave the ordination and the bhikkhus uh, confirm and complete the process. And this type of ordination is known as a dual ordination as opposed to a single ordination with just the bhikkhus. And when we come later on to the reinstatement of the bhikkhuni order um, after the gap of a thousand years, we'll see how this um, plays into how it comes back into being. And uh, just to add one point in this, um, the, the Vinaya, so the Vinaya is the, the body of rules that, is in, that has been uh, evolved through the, in the Buddha's time in relation to the monks and the nuns, the bhikkhuni, bhikkhuni communities, um, the the first rule was bhikkhus, I allow you bhikkhus to ordain bhikkhunis. So first the Buddha said, you know, go ahead bhikkhus, ordain bhikkhunis. And then later, as Mindy mentions, he, say, he says about the dual ordination. But the first rule was never taken away. So they both both concurrent, and that's quite unusual in the Vinaya. Normally, if, if it changes, if the rule changes for some reason, then they take away the first one, replace it with the new one. But this, they both remained in the which is also important. So, the, um, this quote um, and the title of the presentation comes from the Mahaparinirvana Sutta. Um, and it's when the Buddha talks about his vision of the fourfold Sangha um, or the fourfold assembly. Um, he was really unequivocal about his intention, and the Mahaparinirvana Sutta is a very, very long sutta that takes place, that, that he says right when he's in the process of dying. So it's an entire life review, and it actually shows that his vision of the fourfold assembly um, happened or came to him right after his enlightenment and before he started teaching um, for the first time. Um, and... Uh, what he said was um, Mara came back to him after his enlightenment after the night of enlightenment when Mara came and did all these things that were trying to get him from you know 
staying, staying focused on being enlightened. And Mara came back and said, okay, you're enlightened, so now it's time to die. And, he, and Mara came back three times and he said, no, 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 I'm not ready to pass yet. Um, until I have bhikkhu disciples, bhikkhuni disciples, lay men disciples, and lay women disciples who are accomplished, disciplined, skilled, learned, and expert in the Dhamma. So he wanted to create um, this assemb- these four assemblies so that they could carry on his teachings after he died. Um, there are many works of art uh, through the ages, and this one is in particular is from Wat Po in Thailand, we see here, let me see if I can get this. Um, we see here the bhikkhunis, uh, and here are the lay women, lay men, and I mean bhikkhus and lay men. And it's kind of ironic that this, this was um, done in the 18th century CE um, in Wat Po, and it's kind of ironic that it's in Thailand because Thailand is one of those countries where there's the most pushback these days against having women ordained as bhikkhunis. Another um, mural from Wat Po shows the um, 13 Arahant bhikkhunis here. Um, just as uh, the Buddha extolled the attainments of many enlightened bhikkhunis um, in his assembly, just as the Buddha had two chief male disciples, he likewise had two foremost female disciples, Kema and Upalawana. Um, and there's a beautiful chant about these bhikkhunis that had kind of died out. I had never heard it before the sisters came to the United States. And um, it's sung quite often in the monastery. And you'll be hearing it later when I show you, when you see the video. So the Buddha's original vision was that the fourfold sangha consisted of male monastics, female monastics, male lay people, and female lay people. Um, and what happened to the bhikkhuni lineage? Um, during uh, the, the Buddha um, created the bhikkhuni lineage around 550 BC, and it existed till about 1100 CE. And then the bhikkhuni lineage died out in Sri Lanka, um, but and then reemerged in 1988. And we're going to go into more detail about that. So um, the Buddha created the fourfold sangha in his time. And now we're going to skip about 300 years. And if you can take a minute and just think about 300 years ago, 1717, um, how different culture was, how different um, meal, food gathering was, how different, uh, no computers, no technology as we know it. Life was very, very different. So 300 years, we can see the difference. If we think 300 years in the future, how different our lives will be then. So uh, the, the Bhikkhuni Sangha has existed from the time of the Buddha for, for many generations um, and has become very well established at this point. And we um, skipped 300 years to the time of King Ashoka, the um, Emperor Ashoka, who converted to Buddhism. Um, he ruled for about 35 years, and he considered Buddhism a doctrine that would serve as a cultural foundation for political unity. Um, his um, pillars here were very well known throughout Asia, and he sent um, his, 
he reigned over a huge area of, um, in Asia from Afghanistan to, Ma- to Bangladesh, down south, the Indian subcontinent, all the way down to Kerala and um, excluding Kerala and Tamil Nadu, the very point of India, but a huge area. And he also sent Buddhist missionaries in nine different directions. And um, he sent one, Ayatata Loka, who is a, a Bikuni historian in the area. She lives in Jenner. Um, she wrote a story called Glimmers of a Thai Bikuni Sangha. And in it, she writes about documents that she's researched that shows that um, King Ashoka sent a whole contingent of bhikkhus to the area of Thailand, Laos, Burma, um, China and Cambodia, that whole area of Southeast Asia, and ordained 3,500 men and 1,500 women. And it's interesting to me that bhikkhus were sent and not bhikkhunis in this contingent. And Ayatatoloka points out that the bhikkhunis at this point in time, 300 years after um, the Buddha established the bhikkhunis, were ordained only by bhikkhus because the bhikkhunis weren't mentioned in any of the texts that she was researching. As opposed to sending all of these bhikkhus in that direction, he sent his son down south to Sri Lanka, and his name was Mahindatera. And um, the princess of um, Sri Lanka was very taken by the Buddhist teachings, and she wanted to convert and she wanted to join the Sangha. And Mahindatara said, it is not for us to do. You need to have a bhikkhuni here in order to ordain you. So we see in the same period of time, one group is being ordained by bhikkhus, one group is being ordained by perhaps bhikkhunis and bhikkhus. So there's kind of a mix going on. And um, so Mahindatara suggests to the princess that she ask the king of Sri Lanka, to talk to Ashoka, his father, and have his sister sent down, Sangamita, um, who was uh, a bhikkhuni at that point. And, um, and that's exactly what happened. My, um, my gut feeling is that Mahindatara was homesick. There's absolutely no proof to this. Was homesick and wanted his sister to come and wanted his sister. But, in, but there is um, evidence that Ashoka had a really hard time giving up two of his, of his children, um, but he did. He sent Sangamita down to, um, to Sri Lanka. And she came, and um, this uh, mural is, uh, was painted in the mid-20th century, around 1927 or so, in the Kalyana uh, Temple in Colombo. Um, Sangamita arrived on the full moon of, uh, you can see the full moon here, of December. And um, Sangamita Day is celebrated in Sri Lanka to this day on that day. Um, He also sent a sapling of the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha had been enlightened. Um, At that point in time, there were no Buddha statues. Buddha statues really didn't come later until the Greeks and the Romans. And um, the Bodhi tree really represented, in that point in history, a site of great awakening and and represented the Buddha and his teachings at that point in history. So um, really, uh, King Ashoka wanted to literally and figuratively plant the teachings of the Buddha in Sri Lanka at that time. So the bhikkhuni, um, 
the Bikuni Sangha prospered alongside the Bhikkhu Sangha for over 1,200 years in Sri Lanka until they were wiped out by a Chola king from southern India who attacked Sri Lanka in 1017. But before we jump ten, the 1,200 years to 1217, we're going to just jump around 700 years to 429 CE and take a little trip to China along with some bikunis from Sri Lanka. Again, imagine 700 years ago, 1317, and how different society was. Um, and jump 700 years in the future. Who knows what the conditions are going to be for um, humans in, at that point in history. So it was a long time, many generations have passed, and the Bhikkhuni Sangha is well established not only in India but also in Sri Lanka. So we're, we're jumping uh, 700 years in the future to uh, 429, fourth, around 429, 433, when a group of Sri Lankan Bhikkhunis go to China and establish... Um, the Bhikkhuni Sangha during, uh, through dual ordination. So um, there's a primary document that verifies that there was a group of Sri Lankan Bhikkhunis that traveled by boat to China in 429. And we also know from another document there's a group of nuns in China at that time that had been ordained by a group of bhikkhus only. And these Chinese nuns wanted to be reordained in the dual ordination, in a, with a dual ordination, which is what they saw was more in line with what the Buddha had, had envisioned. So again, we see over time in the, next hundred, in the next 700 years that the dual ordination really kind of takes precedent over just a bhikkhu ordination historically, though we know in the Vinaya that both of them were okay. So what to do? There weren't enough bhikkhunis from Sri Lanka to do a dual ordination. Um, there needed to be a, a certain quorum. Some had died. They didn't have a bhikkhuni who had 12 vases or 12 years experience as a bhikkhuni. So the Chinese um, women, nuns, asked some of the uh, Sri Lankan nuns to go, if they would be willing to go back to Sri Lanka and gather up the women that were needed to form a quorum and then come back to China and do the dual ordination. Um, and a group said that they were willing to do this. So they got on a boat and they went to Sri Lanka and they came back four years later in 433. So just to give you an idea of the kind of trip that was, this was, um, I just kind of guessed this route, but when Ayatata Loka saw this, she said she thought that this was probably the most practical route for them to take. And you can see that they got on this boat in Shanghai and they went to Sri Lanka. That trip took two years. And then they gathered up whoever they needed and they came back to uh, near Shanghai another two years. It took them a lot, it took them four years to make this voyage. It wasn't just hop on a plane, gather up the people and come back, gather up the women and come back. Um, a huge amount of dedication to leave China and go back to Sri Lanka and then to leave their home again to come back to China. 
um, and give full ordination to the Chinese women who were wanting higher ordination or dual ordination. They came back uh, four years later in 433, and they um, gave higher ordination or dual ordination to 300 women in the Nanling Southern Forest Monastery in Nanking, which is where they arrived back. And just to give you an idea of Nanking and, and how it's all changed, here's Nanking in the 1920s, and here's Nanking in the present, much different than 433 ECE. Um, and just to bring, bring Nanking to the present time, because this lineage existed and continued to exist continuously until the present day, um, in the early 20th century, uh, there were many huge monasteries in mainland China. And before the communist takeovers, the monks in China thought that they were strong and that they would be able to survive. But the the bhikkhunis, the nuns, thought that if, the ch if China was going to be taken over to the communists, by the communists, it was really time for them to leave. So they gathered up all their resources and they began to, to build nunneries um, in Taiwan and they became very well settled in Taiwan. Um, so this is a picture from the contemporary Nanling Southern Monastery, which is the namesake of the original um, monastery that was... Um, where the original bhikkhuni um, dual ordination happened in um, Nanking. And you can see that it's a very vibrant, um, full-on Theravada um, community there. Well, when the, when the communists did take over the mainland, the monks realized that it really was not going to work for them. And they fled to Taiwan in a hurry, and they arrived with almost nothing. And the nuns really welcomed them and helped them get settled. And the uh, laity and the uh, monks really appreciated the nuns and how much they supported the monks when they finally did get to Taiwan. To this day, the nuns far outnumber the monks. They're very well educated and they have strong communities with their own leaders. Uh, the numbers in 2014 show that there were as many as six times the amount of bhikkhunis as there were nuns. And you'll see later on there's a, a, an award that was just um, given to Ayananda Bodhi and Ayasanta Chita, and we're going to talk a little about this award and the kind of support that was shown them in Taiwan. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> Any, something you wanted to add? Oh, no, I have the award right here. I moved it to, just to show you this. Um, so... These are, because I usually don't have her by my side, <laughs> so I'm quoting. The award ceremony was held in a stadium. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I can. The, uh, the awards, it was a, a stadium of where there were about 10,000 people. So when we got the invitation for this award, I sent Chichen and we were told what it was, that it's going to be about 10,000 people. It'll be in a stadium. It'll be on all the, all the main uh, newspapers of uh, Taiwan and on the TV, we actually thought it was a joke. Live stream. We thought it was a hoax, so we, we were a little sceptical. And then we found out, no, it actually was true. <laughs> so uh, it was an extraordinary experience. But, uh, but also, like, to be in Taiwan and to be in a country which has the, the highest number of bikinis per capita in a, of anywhere in the world, where the women are very confident, very strong, in a, in a beautiful way, in a kind of a motherly way, actually. It was, it was, it was something I hadn't experienced before. Not a fighting spirit, but a, just a, a confidence that's just there because you know you have a place and, and it's right and it belongs. It was very beautiful. 
And uh, yes, the, uh, the um, ceremony itself, there were 51 bikinis. Uh, 52 uh, were given the award. I think something like 48 of us went there to receive the awards. And there was this enormous stadium full of people cheering us on. So it was like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> so I thought, this is very unusual. <laughs> I thought, yeah. maybe in 1,200 years it'll be like yeah. that in the West. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And as, just to say also that the reason for the award was because um, a, a group of bhikkhunis who'd ordained over 50 years ago and who were supported by particular monks <clears throat> at that time, uh, they had got together 20 years ago and, and created an association which brought together, it was like an umbrella which brought together bikinis of all different kinds. So some are really into Vinaya, some are into um, social service, some were into art, some were uh, people doing all kinds of different things, meditation. So it was an umbrella that brought together all of these diverse bikinis under the umbrella of we're all bikinis and to, so that they can help each other and support each other. And it was a celebration of 20 years of, of that and what they'd accomplished in that time. So they took us around Taiwan, showing us these different places, different people that had been that had benefited from those bikinis. And uh, the monks who had supported them tw- uh, 50 years ago were—they really saw the importance of educating the women. That if the, uh, like if the bikinis are educated, both in the monastic life and the vinaya, and also academically, they will be confident and they will be able to take what they have out into the world. And so. I got to witness the the result of that, and it was very inspiring, extraordinary. Yeah, thank you. Great. So that's the the um, continuous lineage to the present day that was started by this group of Sri Lankan nuns um, who took this four four year long boat ride um, and came and um, ordained. So we have the. Um, the Sri Lankan bhikkhunis establishing this continuous bhikkhuni lineage, and we can see how strong it stayed. Um, but let's go back now to Sri Lanka. Remember uh, Sangamita? She established the bhikkhuni uh, sangha in Sri Lanka in about 265 BC or so. Then we went off on the tangent to China, and uh, now we're coming back to the timeline of... Um, uh, uh, another jumping another 600 years from the time of the Sri Lankan nuns going off to China. We're going to jump another 600 years or so and remember that the monastic sangha, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, had been in existence in Sri Lanka for about 1,200 years and had been in existence in the world for about 1,500 years. And um, we jump 700 years to 1017 CE, when both the bhikkhu and the bhikkhuni sanghas are died out in Sri Lanka due to Cholian invasions. Um, and they became defunct. And the Cholians ruled for about 50 years, and then a new king arose, and he was a Buddhist king. And he decided that he wanted to um, expel... So he expelled the invaders, and he decided that he wanted to renew the monastic sangha um, and this happens several times in, in, in history. There's no monastic sangha in one place, so they go to another place. They bring monastics back to the place where there aren't monastics, and they start the lineage again. Um, 
there was one article that I read that was an article in the um, in the Colombo paper that pointed out that during these 50 years that the Trollians were in power, um, a huge Tamil and there was Tamil and Hindu influence and the caste system and and anti-feminist forces kind of invaded the culture in Sri Lanka at that point. It's really interesting to me that in 50 years, things like that could change so quickly. And here we've been talking about 300 years, 700 years, 1,200 years. But in 50 years, the caste system and anti-feminist um, uh, viewpoints kind of arose again. So when this new king wanted to... Um, reinstate the monastic order, he sent people to Burma and Thailand and um, asked them to bring monastics back. And when they came back, they brought male monastics, but they said, oh, we're so sorry, we couldn't find any women. There's no women monastics. So the women's order is defunct and uh, can't renew it. It's dead. And the man who was writing this newspaper said that we know that the bhikkhus could have ordained bhikkhunis because they had permission from the Buddha, remember, in single ordination, if they were willing. Um, but their wishes were otherwise, and I quote him, they were more interested in maintaining their monopolies. It suited them to take the caste and anti-feminist line. And Ayatatiloka in her research points out that she's found small pockets of women documented all through, maybe remnants of Ashoka's um, bhikkhu ordinations from many, many years before, small pockets of, of women, um, and uh, they could have brought some of those women even though they were from slightly different traditions. But it was a political decision not to bring any women back and not to revive the bhikkhuni sangha in Sri Lanka at that time. So the um, bhikkhu sangha was renewed in ten, around 1067, and the bhikkhuni sangha was defunct at that point. So just to kind of recap what we've seen, um, the bhikkhuni order was established in 550 and then the, uh, in Sri Lanka in 265 BC. Uh, the bhikkhuni order was established in China in 433 CE. Then the bhikkhuni and bhikkhu order was wiped out in, ten, in 1017 and then no longer exists in Sri Lanka. Um, and the bhikkhuni order no longer exists in, in 1067. And so we got into this gap of almost a thousand years where the Sri Lankan lineage is non-existent, but important to remember that the East Asian lineage still exists, and we saw how vibrant it still exists to this day. Um, so most of the literature that I read about talks about the demise of the Bhikkhuni Sangha in Sri Lanka. So because there's so much information about this history, I've really narrowed down the viewpoint of this presentation to basically around Sri Lanka. We're not talking about Vietnamese, the Vietnamese or the Indonesian or whatever, but because, I was, because we were given four hours this afternoon, a new presentation's been created, and we're going to be able to talk about some of those other women in different parts of Asia um, and uh, later on in the afternoon. So the bhikkhuni order was defunct, but women continued to practice. Um, we have the 
Mechis in uh, Thailand, um, the first evidence that we see of Mechis is in the 17th century. Um, we know that um, most are t- a precept nuns. Um, they're pretty poorly educated even to this day, and they basically serve as monks to the uh, maids to the monks. In Myanmar or Burma, there's the Tila Shin. Their ten precept nuns are in slightly better position um, than the Mechi. Uh, they are they receive training, they practice meditation, they sit for some qualification exams as the monks. Um, and then in the early 20th century, the Tila Shen order was brought to Sri Lanka in the form of Dasa Silmata um, in the early 20th century. And the Dasa Silmata are ten precept nuns, basically. Um, but many of the Buddhist um, monks and laity in in Sri Lanka really realized that the DSM, as it's called, um, status with the nuns was really incon- incongruous and incongruent with the Buddha's vision. And um, many of the monks, not all, but many of the monks felt that um, it was really necessary to renew the bhikkhuni ordination to bring it to bring it more aligned with the Buddhist vision, and it was this clarity that really planted the seeds for change, and it really started the the revival of the bhikkhuni order in in Sri Lanka. Though it took almost a century for it to happen. Um, and then in England we see the Siladara, which were established in 1983. Um, and this, the Siladara order is the closest to the Bikuni order. It's only done in um, England at Chitterst and Amravati monasteries in the Achanchan lineage, again, since 1983. Um, the order was originally created in response to a request by four women for ordination equal to the bhikkhus. Achan Sumedho went to the head of Amravati, um, went to Thailand and got permission for the Siladara order to be established in England only. Um, the Siladara are very well trained, 10 precept nuns, they live in community, but they're not fully ordained in line with the vision of the Buddha. Um, nor do they have equal opportunities that the bhikkhus have at their respective monasteries. Um, and the Siladaro is a very important part of this story because later on in the presentation, um, the Aloka Vahara nuns are going to be used as, as an example of a group of pioneering women who are bringing the Bikuni order back into existence. And they were originally Siladara nuns um, before they were invited to the States. Is there anything and just, you want to uh, add? just to clarify, when, when Mindy says uh, the Siladra is, is the closest to the Bikuni order, that's, that was in the way the Siladra live. So in the actual training that we lived by, it was, it was very, very close to how a Bikuni lives by. But in terms of ordination, it's, it's, it's a long, 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 long way apart. And the ordination ceremony was very similar to the Bikuni ordination ceremony, but it, it doesn't have the validity of the Bikuni order, the ordination. So... For the Siladara, it's a very confusing, actually, an ambiguous position where you kind of, it, it all looks like, you know, it's like a make-believe bikini. <laughs> and you're living as a bikini. But when you step out of that that small world of, of those two monasteries into uh, pretty much anywhere else in the world, you're not recognized as a, as a, a nun, sometimes as a nun at all, and sometimes as a 
fully ordained nuns. So it's a very odd situation to be in, yeah. So, um, so now we're kind of in the gap years. Um, the Siladara, the, uh, sorry, the Bikunis <laughs> have died out in Sri Lanka and um, have died out for, they died out for almost a thousand years. And the revival of the Bikuni Sangha doesn't start until late in the 20th century. The East Asian, uh, it's important to remember that the ordinations that we're talking about are not innately Theravada or Mahayana. And this, in the beginning, when I was working on this presentation, it always confused me. You know, how can Mahayana nuns ordain Theravada nuns? It doesn't make sense. Isn't it a different tradition? And all of that was very confusing to me. But um, later on, I came to understand that we're really going back to the very base base roots of the early Buddhist Vinaya traditions. Um, and in China, we're not talking about a Mahayana ordination lineage. We're talking about this really early Buddhist Vinaya, which is common to both. Once it gets into day-to-day life, it looks very different. Um, so you could say that the, the, the Vinaya itself is, is very, very, very similar, almost, almost exactly the same, and the ordination procedure almost exactly the same for the Mahayana and the old uh, Pali version. And the way of living is different, and the, and the orientation and the, the um, emphases of the Mahayana and Theravada are different, but the actual Vinaya is what it is, and, and the ordination is a Vinaya. Uh, it's a, what we call the Sangha Kama. It's, a, it's um, a, a gathering of the Sangha, a, a legality of the Sangha, and it's the same, pretty much the same, if you're Mahayana Theravada. So that's how we've been able to... I've been able to ordain. <laughs> and the, the Vinaya in the um, Mahayana schools, in, because this ordination spread um, t- from China to Korea, Vietnam, is called the Dharma Dukkap. Dharma Guptika. The Dharma like Guptika. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those that I can't, just can't get. Um, it's one of the Theravada sects. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is evidence that... Um, there were attempts to, est- to reestablish the bhikkhuni order in Burma, which is pretty amazing, in the 1930s, 50s, and in the 70s, but to no avail. Um, in 1934, the World Federation of Buddhists in Sri Lanka recommended or advocated for the restoration of the bhikkhuni order to no avail. In 1952, a very famous and respected bhikkhu actually went to China to study the Vinaya there, said that it was that the Vinaya, that the, the ordination process is firmly established in the Theravada Vinaya and um, as it was established in 433 CE and recommended that the Chinese nuns come and start, jumpstart the bhikkhuni um, uh, lineage to no avail. Nothing happened. And then finally, in 1984, Dr. Hima uh, Gunalaki, from the Sakya Dita organization, an organization of um, Buddhist women, went to China and talked to a group called Fo Guanshan, which is an international group that serves the Chinese diaspora all through the world. And basically what she said to them was, the bhikkhuni ordination was given by Sri Lankan women to you in 433, and now it's time for you to give it back to us. 
And Fo Guanshan was kind of like, whoa, okay, so how do we do this? And it took them four years to figure out how to begin to do that. Um, and in 1988, um, they put together the first ordination of women in America, of all places, in Los Angeles. Um, they had just recently built the Shi Lai Monastery in Hacienda Heights, and they had the ordination there. There were a group of five Sri Lankan Dasa Silmata, ten precept nuns. They also included nuns from Nepal, um, a woman named Damawati Guruma, who we're going to hear more about later on in the um, next presentation. And there were also 10 other international women from other countries, including Ayakema, who became quite famous. You might recognize her name. They were all ordained by the Pali Rite um, ordination by the Sri Lankan Bhikkhu Sangha first, and then by the Taiwanese Bhikkhunis and Bhikkhus. Um, Unfortunately, this, this ordination, um, though it was, it was a good attempt, really hadn't, they, what they hadn't done was create an infrastructure in Sri Lanka for the women to go back to and really be supported. It wasn't yet. It was a little premature. And a lot of the women who went back to Sri Lanka just didn't, what, they weren't able to survive as bikunis. Um, Interestingly enough, when, when um, Damawati went back to Nepal, she had an infrastructure. She had a lot of supporters already there before she was ordained as a bhikkhuni. And she went back, and her practice thrived. And we'll hear more about um, what she's doing in Nepal later. So that was the first, 1988. And then there's a gap until 1960, 1996 when the Korean Bikuni Sangha gave it a try. And they, along with, the, with Sakyadita, um, picked, care, picked, hand-picked 10 DSM nuns, Dasa Silmata nuns, to fully ordain as Bikunis. Um, and it was the first time in a thousand years that the Bikuni order had been reinstated in India. They did this at, in Sarnath, the first place where the Buddha had um, uh, talked after his enlightenment. It was planned and intended to be a dual ordination, um, but that's not what happened for some reason. And I find it really kind of ironic that history repeats itself. Like they were really trying for the dual ordination and for some reason it didn't and it went back to what, the, what had originally happened. Only the bhikkhus ordained them in 1996. Um, in 1997, there was another ordination, again in America, and women from Sri Lanka, Nepal, and the United States, including Ayatataloka, um, the uh, nun that I told you about, the historian, who's been writing a lot about the history of bhikkhunis, was also ordained. And... Um, Venerable Dr. Havanapola Ratnasara um, was uh, the preceptor there, and Ayatataloka asked me in any presentation to make sure to mention him, because without his support, the Bikuni lineage could not have been revived at all. He was a real mover and shaker in being able to train and support Bikunis all over the world and being, being ordained. 
Um, so um, this, this, interestingly enough, was also planned to be a dual ordination. And one of the bikunis got sick and couldn't be, um, couldn't be present, and there were only four bikunis and five is needed. So um, there was no quorum. So even though the bikunis had been involved in long training in order to be part of the, um, of the ordination, this particular one was done by the bhikkhu sangha alone. And then in 1988, there was the, full international, the first international full ordination sponsored by Fo Guan Shan again in Bodh Gaya, India. And um, they were well aware of the criticism of the 1996 that it wasn't a dual ordination. Some of the women weren't wearing the robes that they wanted to be, um, that they, of the traditions that they were being ordained in. So um, they changed all that. All the women wore the robes of their tradition. Um, first, they were ordained in the, through dual ordination through the Dharma Guptaka, right? Um, by both the bhikkhuni and the bhikkhu uh, sanghas. And then after that, the new bhikkhunis who wished to continue in the Theravada tradition were ordained by the bhikkhus. It was like they were not taking any chances at all. They wanted everything to be right. And um, the women who ordained in this 1996, uh, 1998 um, ordination um, returned to Sri Lanka and were were much more accepted um, by, the, um, by the people there at this point. Um, they actually made a decision um, with Fo Guan Shan that the women who were ordained in 1998 um, were given permission to be preceptors to the next generation of um, of bikunis in Sri Lanka, and they almost immediately, instead of waiting 12 years, they almost immediately began to ordain women who wanted to be ordained, who had been dasasilmata for many years, decades sometimes, who wanted to become bikunis, and they started right away. And the information that we have 20 years later is that there's almost a thousand bikunis in Sri Lanka at this point. Um, we're also aware that it is not. Um, that the, that the government doesn't look at bhikkhunis in Sri Lanka the same way they look at bhikkhus in ways of um, benefits, cards, health insurance, um, opportunities for training and things like that. But, the, but in spite of that, the, the order is really thriving in Sri Lanka. So between... 1998, and so we have, between 1998 and 2003, there were many ordinations um, in Sri Lanka, but we don't have time to go into in this presentation. But in 2003, there was a very interesting ordination. It was the first modern international bhikkhuni ordination, where people from, uh, where women from outside of Sri Lanka, from other countries, were invited to come and be ordained. And this was the beginning of the process of women in other countries being able to take bhikkhuni ordination. So we have Aya Sudama, who was the first American bhikkhuni to be ordained, um, Thailand's venerable Damananda and Burmese-born Aya, excuse me, Gunasari were all ordained at this time. And they're important 
people in the story of the Bikuni movement because each one of them goes back to their home country and has since then established um, monasteries and places of training for women um, and, and also now have begun, because they have their 12 vases, have begun ordaining the next generation of women. This picture was taken in 2007 at the Hamburg Conference, which was called by the Dalai Lama to talk about the question of, um, so what are we going to do about about the about the whole bikuni question, the whole question of um, or the ordination of women? Um, so no great or immediate changes came out of this question, though the entire issue of women's ordination continues to grow and change and ripple through the worldwide Buddhist Sangha. And you were there, mm-hmm. so do you want to make a yes, comment? Yes, I'd like to speak a little. So uh, the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama called together scholars and Vinaya experts and practitioners from all over the world, from all lineages, all Buddhist lineages, to see if it was possible to reinstate full ordination for women in the Tibetan tradition, or to instate, it actually has never started fully there, in the Tibetan tradition and also in the Theravada tradition. And I think that was the first time that uh, we got to hear from uh, eminent Buddhist, respected Buddhist scholars like um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Theravada scholars like Bhikkhu Bodhi, Venerable Analyo, uh, Ayatatalok also spoke there, and Ayagunasari, who were making it clear that if uh, not, there was no definitive it can happen, but it was clear that if we look at it this way, there's no problem it can happen. If we look at it that way, we can say it can't happen. So it's really up to, up to us to, just, to look at it in the right way and make it happen. And um, going through these three days of of intensive uh, presentations and and discussions, the very last day, uh, His Holiness joined for a a panel discussion. And uh, sadly, well, one of the um, Bikuni who'd organized the conference, she said, Your Holiness, no stone has been unturned. We've, We've looked at every possible, everything possible. We've studied everything possible, and we've come up with this. You know, it's not a definitive answer, but it's it's like it's possible to reinstate. You know, if with the blessing of the of the sangha and and his and she said, say anything, but don't say it needs more research. And unfortunately, he had a pre-prepared speech within which it said it needs more research. We can't we can't do it. And uh, he suggested to that nun who'd been a nun for twenty years already in the Tibetan tradition, she'd been a bhikkhuni for twenty years, and she'd ordained on his recommendation, but. Although she was a bhikkhuni, it's not recognised within the Tibetan tradition. So she's so in order to ordain, you're sort of a little bit out of the of the lineage. And uh, he suggested to her to go to Bodhgaya. She was a professor in Hamburg and teaching, and had a practice there and lived very high level of um, training. And then he said, go to Dharamsala, keep these particular rules which she's already keeping in Germany, and let the old scholars, the Vinaya experts, see you. And then maybe, gradually, they'll start to realize and they'll change things. So that was His Holiness's suggestion. So we all left quite sort of crestfallen, I must say. And, uh, and, and it was, there was a sense of, you know, people actually, there was some people actually left the robes after that. So I went with a group of six people. As we were walking out the door, one, one of the nuns said, that's it, I'm out of here. Another one left a few months later. 
And it, it kind of brought home the reality of what we were, the, 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 the hugeness. What I can say is I went in there thinking, you know, we're chipping away at the, at the wall of patriarchy that's stopping women coming in. And while I was there, it was like zooming out and seeing, my goodness, it's enormous. I had no, we had no idea. And so some decided to leave and some were like, okay, let's go for it, you know. So it, it, it was a sort of an ultimatum. Yeah. But one thing that you and Ayatata Loka mentioned to me, because I, I interviewed them both, um, just to kind of picked their brains, and you both said that um, the concept of the fourfold sangha or the fourfold assembly was something that really came into your consciousness during that time, um, that it really hadn't been emphasized before that, but that was something that became really important and um, front and center. Um, so one aspect of... of of this picture, which I just love, is just to show you the worldwide flavor of the Bikuni Sangha in 2007. So we have um, um, somebody from Burma. Agunasari. Agaya Gunasari from Burma. Um, Myanmar. Ayasudama. Ayasudama from America. Uh, Tenzin Palmer from England. Ayatata Loka from America. And... Um, Venerable Damananda from Thailand. Please. Bhikkhuni is in the Theravada tradition. Bhikshuni is in the Tibetan tradition. So it's the same word, but Bhikkhuni is Pali and Bhikshuni is the Sanskrit. So it's just slightly different pronunciation. And I, I just recently added this amazing slide um, about from the Buddha Chatu Parisa Foundation International. This is a group in Thailand who has, um, in 2010, made the decision to support the Fourfold Assembly, the Fourfold Sangha. Um, they, um, and we, I don't have the exact information, but we think that this is a temporary ordination, which is mm-hmm. quite common among bhikkhus to temporarily ordain as a rite of passage in Thailand, but was never available to women um, in Thailand at all. Um, the Bhikkhu Chatu Parisa Foundation now has two uh, temples in Thailand, one in Alaska, in Fairbanks, Alaska, one in India, and one in Australia. And they they decided to make one in um, Alaska, which I, I uh, let me see if I can find this. They they thought that um, because America was so open to religious diversity, beliefs, and practices, that it would help facilitate the revival and awareness of the Bikuni ordination in the Theravada tradition. So let's hope that we can live up to their expectations <laughs> in the way our society is going these days. Um, so I find that uh, quite impressive. And then um, in, 20, in, in 2008 yeah. was the first um, seminary, seminary ordination in Jenner with Ayatata Loka and um, um, Anagarika Suvijana. And Aviga, uh, Suvijana is, a uni- is, uh, is from the United States. She's Canadian, and she's also Native American. And um, here she is at Jenner, near Jenner, um, 
accepting the um, vows of novice from Ayatatoloka. And this was the first time Ayatatoloka had um, ten vasas, and a bhikkhuni with ten vasas can give vows of the, um, of the novice. Um, and then the following year, um, Ayatatoloka begins to rock the boat with Achan Brahm's help and goes to Australia and is invited to be the pre- preceptor to four seminaries who were ordained at the Bodhiyana Monastery in Western Australia. And um, Achan Brahm and his monastery were in the Achan Cha lineage at that point, and, um, which does not... Remember, the Achan Cha lineage is the lineage that has the Siladara and do not allow women to become fully ordained. Um, and... Uh, he brought Ayatatoloka to ordain these four women and um, was called to Thailand, was called on the carpet in Thailand and asked three times to renege on the, and declare the ceremony invalid and that these women were not bhikkhunis. And three times he refused. Well, and he, he actually said that he couldn't do that because it was a legal uh, binding thing. He wasn't. He wasn't in a position to to say it was not valid. It was a. It was in fact a valid ordination. So uh, he stood by that. Yeah. And this caused a huge international uproar with lots of petitions. And Laurie shaking your head. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if any of you were involved in that. But petitions and letters to the Thai government and the forces and all of that. And and nothing really changed. Um, Achan Brahm and his monastery were delisted from the Achan Cha lineage. He returned to Ta'a to Australia, and um, and everything was continued to go as he was still supported. The monastery supported the women were supported, um, and um, he continues to support bhikkhunis internationally through his speech and his actions. And we'll talk a little bit more about how he's helping to do that later. So that was Ayatatoloka's first ordination. Um, The next year, she um, was able to ordain in the United States, and the Bhikkhuni Sangha continued to grow in the United States. In August of 2010, she ordained... um, at Aranya Bodhi Hermitage in California. And um, there were two from the United States, one from New Zealand, one woman from New Zealand, and one woman from Germany at that point. And this was a really big event for me personally uh, because I brought Ayananda Bodhi and um, Aya Santachita, who were Achan Ananda Bodhi and Achan Santachita at that time. They were both Siladara. You can see them over here. Um, I brought them, I drove them to the ordination, and it was the first time that I really saw how the Siladara were in position to the rest of the monastic sangha. Um, there's a sema that's set up, which is kind of the, the sacred boundary. space, the boundary mm-hmm. for, the, um, for the ordination to take place, and only fully ordained monastics are allowed within the sema. So the Siladara were not allowed within the sema, and they needed to stay outside of it. They needed to go to the back of the line in order to get food, you know, with the... Uh, and, with the, and they had been in robes for almost 20 years at that point. It was a real eye-opener for me. And um, 
And for us, I just and like I found say, out that it was a real for us, it was it was a very it was a very good time because this was something that we had known all you know for many years that people just thought it was all the same. They didn't know the difference between Bikuni and Sidran. And uh, going to this ordination, when we went there, we went there very clearly, knowing, okay, we'll, you know, it's a formal ceremony. We won't be allowed to be part of the ordination. We're going to be with the novices for the meal, even though we've been nuns for you know almost 20 years. We knew that that would be the case, and and it's because of the ordin- the lack of having a, a recognised ordination. And so there was a certain freedom in that actually of just saying, this is the truth of how it is. Everybody, have a look, you know. So this is how it is, and it's not how it appears to be. So there was a certain dispelling of the, of the illusion of, of it's all the same, which is what we lived in. We'd, we'd always been told that, oh, it's all the same, it's all the same. But once you step out of the little community in England, it isn't the same. So uh, it was, um, for me, though, for both of us actually, after also witnessing a, a, an ordination, we were always told it can't be done, it's impossible. It's, you know, actually being there and seeing it with our own eyes is like, Okay, there's no way, you know, there's no going back now. This is, it has to be the way forward. So, um, and they specifically began to question whether the Siladara form was what they wanted to give to the next generation of women. And it became quite clear um, that it was not. And so, um, what to do? Here they are in San Francisco being supported by the Saranaloka Foundation as Siladara. And, um, and they want to be bikunis. And that's the next step in their process, in their practice. And, and the, uh, the Saranaloka Foundation was set up specifically to support Siladara. So we were not sure what's going to happen. If we're not Siladara, what are we going to do with it? So if we, if we, we knew that we had to take full ordination. We knew that if we did that, we wouldn't be able to go back to the community we came from in England but we didn't know whether the Saranaloka Foundation would support us or not because they weren't, they were kind of, their remit was a little bit narrower than that. So we actually had an address in South Africa. Tunisra gave us a, a place in South Africa that if it didn't work out here, we could go there. Never been to Africa, but it was like, okay, if it doesn't work out here, we'll go there. <laughs> so there were a couple of months where it was unknown, and it was very inspiring to me to see them make these decisions with, and jump into the unknown and not know where they were going to land, but know that this was the next appropriate step. And um, as somebody, um, somebody who I showed the presentation to pointed out, it, there were par- parallels between, if, if we think about Sangamita leaving her home and going to, to Sri Lanka to give the ordination to the women in Sri Lanka, the women in Sri Lanka leaving their home twice to give the ordination in China. So here are two women in modern times leaving their home of almost 20 years, their monastery of almost 20 years, to come to the United States to give ordination to women within their own culture, within the Western culture. Very similar history repeating itself, which I find fascinating. So they took the leap, and it took Saranaloka about two months Jill and I sat with all the emails looking at the timeline, and yeah, it was about two months of unknown. And finally, the Saranaloka Foundation realized that they could expand their bylaws and, and support both the, the Siladara and the Bikunis of Aloka Vahara. And that's how the Aloka Vahara nuns stayed with, under the auspices of the Saranaloka Foundation. 
And there's a little story, if I can interject. There's a little story of, uh, of that it just happened that uh, when we moved over to America, we started to, to dialogue with Bhikkhu Bodhi, who you probably know of, a great scholar and translator. And uh, it happened that he was going to be in uh, the Bay Area. And so we invited him, please come and visit us at a local Vihara. And so he came, and it was... When we invited him, all of this hadn't happened yet. So he came right in the midst of the time when the, our board were trying to decide whether they would support or not the change from Siddhartha to Bikuni. And, and the minimum number for the board is three, and two were supportive and one wasn't sure. And he met with those three women and he explained the bigger picture. And then by the end of that conversation, all three were on board. So, <laughs> so we can really <laughs> say thank you to Bikki Bodhi and also to the Dharma really taking care of us. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I was I had the honor of um, interfacing with uh, so so what happened was they decided to become um, bikunis. Spirit Rock offered their meditation center for the mon- for the uh, for the ordination, and so in October of 2011, um, the then seminaries plus another woman from Canada were ordained in um, uh, a dual ordination at Spirit Rock. Um, about 350 people attended, including 50 monastics from all lineages in the um, Buddhist world, um, in all major branches. And um, I want to play the, a video that was put together called A New Beginning, about the beginning of Aloka Vihara, because I really feel like, well, we, we have... Ananda Bodhi, <laughs> we have I Ananda Bodhi here today with us. Most of the time, I don't. So, but um, I think they really speak well of this this time in the life of uh, Loka Vihara and Bikunis in general. Um, it's just the last time since so much has been happening in Loka Vihara during the past year that this is this is beginning to look a little bit out of date. I was just beginning to feel that, like there needs to be a new video, but I think it's still pretty relevant, so um, I'd like to play it for you all. Do you want to stay there? Awesome. Yeah. Can you all hear? Okay. Monasteries in England for about 17 years, and they will always be very grateful for the excellent training and support we received. I've had an interest for many years to see a monastery for women, for, for nuns, having lived in mixed monasteries in England, and knowing that there are many that are set up just for monks, and very, very few that are set up just for nuns. In England, the women were always, you know, by default in a secondary position. It was not possible to take full ordination as bikunis. There's a certain element of hopelessness in that, you know, and a certain element of uh, of resignation, really. And, and I just didn't want to train myself in those qualities because I had been, you know, ordaining as a nun in order to free myself.
the scenes of Sarah Loco really began with the first retreat that um, several of us attended where there were both monks and nuns, and one of the senior nuns was at the end of the food line. So that image really struck home for us, and we recognized that we didn't want things to be like that. That began the discussion, which led to us forming a Saranaloka to support the nuns in England coming over here to teach and to eventually live and hopefully now to start a monastery. It was during a solitary meditation retreat that it became clear to me that in order to fulfill my intention to establish a training monastery, I would have to take full ordination myself. And uh, in order to take full ordination, I would have to leave the lineage that I had been part of for so many years. It meant basically potentially losing everything. It's a difficult path because it, it is a, a revival of something that was established by the Buddha and has been absent in the Theravada tradition for almost a thousand years. If women want to take full advantage of what the Buddha has made available, it's simply you know, the Kuni ordination is the, is the answer. We are now seeing the re-emergence of the full and proper place for female mendicants within the Holy Sasana of the Buddha. It's been a long, long wait. The impenetrable wall of opposition submerged their history, eclipsed records of their wisdom and teachings, and made invisible their lives. In short, this wall of resistance attempts to control the full and radical nature of the Buddha's true inheritance. Founded by the Buddha himself, and 
we don't anymore belong to any particular lineage of a master who is contemporary or who has maybe just lived in the last century. So we are basically on our own now in that sense. And that brings up lots of feelings of uh, inconfidence sometimes, but at the same time, you know, it is exactly what I wanted to become aware of, you know, of my feminine conditioning. And I'd like to use this opportunity to rise up and meet it and transform it. Well, Loco Vihara is the house in San Francisco where the nuns live and where they welcome visitors. So I'm going to I'm going to cut it just a little short today because um, we want to leave some time for questions and answers. Um, and if you'd like to see the the rest of the video, it's available on the website at um, alokafahara.org. So um, 
in the in the remaining of the video, the sisters talk about their dream of moving to a um, uh, rural setting. And I don't know if you remember this conversation, sister, but one time they told me that they were not ocean nuns; they were forest nuns, <laughs> and um, they really wanted to be back in the forest. <laughs> and, so the board and the sisters explored going to the area of Placerville to see how that would work out. And they originally rented this house. And um, in, uh, so the dream of moving to a rural setting came to fruition in May of 2014. And then um, in January of 2015, the house came up for sale. And the board was kind of like, well, can we do it? Let's try it. And they made an offer, and three weeks later, the house was bought, much to the surprise of everybody. And um, donations came in from around the world, which helped pay for approximately three-quarters of the um, mortgage and um, to pay down the loan and to make improvements on the house and the property, which... um, so just two years after its creation, uh, the Aloka Vihara Forest Monastery, as it's now called, is poised to be a training ground um, for the next generation of bhikkhunis and a place where the fourfold assembly can practice together. This is the new logo that was just created by um, one of the supporters um, for the... Um, for the monastery. During the first year of residence, the sisters made it a priority to create space for both men and women lay practitioners to come and stay and practice together. Um, and, um, and now they're in the process, and I have some pictures to show you, um, they're in the process of reconfiguring the nuns' quarters to accommodate the new women who have showed interest in joining, who are requesting training. So this is a good problem. It's a good challenge, and um, we wanted to make sure to invite you to two, to two events that are happening that are growing the, that are growing the monastery. The first event is um, the um, ordination that's going to be happening next week on Saturday, um, uh, August 26th in Santa, Santa Clara. Clara. And um, there's information on the back table about that. And the second event is the Katina that's happening in Placerville. That might be a bit far for you. That Santa Clara seems maybe a little more reasonable. Um, Placerville, um, it's going to be a, a big gathering of supporters from all over. And um, uh, new robes, will, uh, cloth will be offered and the robe will be made within the evening which is quite dramatic, I think. Um, But if you're ever in the area of Placerville, you're welcome to um, call and see if any of the nuns are in residence and to come visit. You're always welcome. So the monastery is growing. And just to give you an idea, if any of you have ever been built, any of you have been involved in a building project, this is the original building. And when they started going for... Um, looking at you know how to get permits and all of that, they found that there were a lot of things that needed to be retrofitted, and so you know how that goes. So this is the building being stripped down, and every time they took something off, there was another surprise. Um, we're very fortunate that our main contractor is a local Buddhist practitioner. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the retrofit was completed, and the upstairs was stripped down to the beams and reconfigured, and um, it really looks quite like living quarters, almost like living quarters now. There's just a few empty open walls like this. Well, actually, they are walls now. We're now painting those walls. (laughs) Almost there. So just to recap... um, in uh, the the um, or the ordinations in modern times started in 1988, and that was the that was the ordination that happened in L.A. with Ayakema ordaining. Uh, the first ordination um, in India happened in 1996. The Ordination, and then 2007, the Hamburg Conference, um, and then and then um, things started happening. Whoops, sorry. Things started happening a lot more quickly. You can see here um, from 2008, um, the first seminary ordination with Ayatatoloka in the United States. Then the first ordination. Um, uh, and then the first ordination in Australia, 2009. First ordination in America, 2010. Ordination, 2011, of the three at Spirit Rock. Um, the Aloka Vihara nuns moved in 2014, and um, Anagarika Maria, who you saw in white, was ordained, was the first ordination to happen in Placerville at the Aloka Vihara, um, at Aloka Vihara in 2014, right after they moved there. Um, and then in 2015, the land was bought, so only two years ago. And, you know, when they first moved here, I wasn't sure whether this was all going to be happening in my lifetime. And so it's quite amazing that it is for me. So it is happening in our lifetime. Um, it's in a pioneering stage. Um, and um, what's, what's really... Um, important for me as a lay supporter is that it's giving women the precious opportunity to explore monastic life in the West, in their own culture, um, and not having to go to Asia and be in a foreign country, in a foreign culture, plus in the foreign country of monastic life. Um, But we can kind of get a little ethnocentric here in California and think that it's all happening in California, but it's not. It's really happening worldwide. And um, the Alliance for Bikunis, which is an international, an organization that supports Bikunis internationally, reports, and this is a year old, this map is a year old, so there might be other countries that are represented, but they told me about a year ago that there are Bikunis in Australia, Cambodia, Canada, Czech Republic, Germany, Hong Kong, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Nepal, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Taiwan, the United States, and Vietnam. So Aloka Vihara is not alone. Um, and uh, it's really kind of a worldwide movement. Somebody who saw this said, well, what about Africa? And what about South America? And all I can say, and all I can say is not yet. India. Question? India. 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 There are in India. England, England will in, come to not later. Not yet. We'll come, we'll come to that in a little bit. Not quite. Not quite there. 
So Ayadana, uh, Venerable Damananda is um, a bhikkhuni, um, one of the first bhikkhunis in Thailand. And there's this wonderful poem that we wanted to share with you to bring this part of the presentation to an end. Thank you. And do you remember what I said about the being in the Hamburg conference and having a sense of that huge wall of patriarchy that was bigger than we thought? So this is a poem by Bhikkhuni Damananda. I am but a small crack on the wall, the wall of patriarchy, the wall of hierarchy, the wall of injustice. Suddenly, there are many more cracks. Eventually, the wall crumbled. Lo and behold, the Buddha is standing on the other side with his opened arms to welcome his daughters who struggled to keep up the heritage, the heritage given by the Buddha, the heritage of the bhikkhunis. So I was very touched when I read that poem. Actually, it brought tears to my eyes the first time I read that poem because that's that sense of where we're struggling against this big wall that was built after the Buddha's time. Maybe some of it, the foundations were there in the Buddha's time, but the wall was built later. And so we're trying to knock that wall down so we can come back to how it was originally intended, that there's a, a place for everyone. And, and I think that this picture illustrates how some of the bhikkhus in the area are really um, supporting that new image. So instead of lining up with bhikkhus first, women later, bhikkhunis later, they've agreed to line up next to each other, side by side, walking. This is a picture, here's a Lokavahara Forest Monastery in the background, and this is a picture from the first um, ordination that happened with um, Ayajayati in 2014. Um, so with the reestablishment of the Bhikkhuni Sangha, the Buddha's vision of the fourfold assembly is, firming, is firmly standing on four legs again. And those bhikkhus, just to say that those uh, bhikkhus, like the first bhikkhu there, he's been a monk for over 50 years. The second one, over 40 years. And uh, they're Sri Lankan bhikkhus. So the Sri Lankan bhikkhu sangha have much more of a, um, an understanding of why it's important to bring back full ordination for women. And they're very proactive in that. So uh, they'll, we'll see more of them. If anyone comes on Saturday to the ordination, you'll see mostly Sri Lankan bhikkhus there. You won't see any, any white bhikkhus. <laughs> <laughs> so... Bows of gratitude to the Alliance for Bikunis uh, for the original PowerPoint to Ayatata Loka for all the information she gave, money more than I could put into the presentation, and for a woman named Jill Schubert who kind of waved her magic wand and made the presentation really fun. Um, just to bring us back to the beginning, um, here's an image from Common Ground in Minneapolis of Mahapajapati and the image here that you have here from Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. Um, I think it's appropriate for us to end with the beginning, and we wouldn't be talking about this history if Mahapajapati had not asked the Buddha for permission to join the order. So we have some time for questions and answers, if anybody has uh, questions and responses, if anybody has any questions. I actually just had a comment, which is that there's also a Mahapajapati statue at um, IRC in uh -huh. Scotts Valley that was commissioned in um, 
Burma uh, a couple wow. of years ago and was created for that center. Wow, in Burma, that's very uplifting. Amazing. The <laughs> artist had to take direction from the Westerner who was commissioning it because he'd never done it before. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Great, that's very great to hear. Well, I was remembering that you, you, you mentioned that uh, Ajahn Sumido went to, from England, mm -hmm. went to request to do ordination in England. Right. So I'll uh, just give a little background. So he, he, um, Ajahn Sumido brought his lineage from Thailand. So his teacher's Ajahn Chah is a Thai master. In Thailand, from uh, something like 1928 until 2006, it was actually illegal by law to ordain anybody, a woman, as a novice, a seminary, or as a bhikkhuni. So that was like by law. And so it was in 1983 that he went to, back to Thailand and he asked, could we give the 10 precepts, which is like a novice status, to women in England, not in Thailand, but just in England, so that, because it's not right in the West to have women always staying in that same position of... Uh, which is for the yeah, mm -hmm. which for the men is like a very temporary novel <coughs> ordination, and so he and he said he was very careful who he spoke to. He spoke to certain elders. He picked out the ones he thought would be supportive, and he didn't ask the ones he thought wouldn't be. So he was able to bring in the ten precept order for the for the nuns in England, which is similar to the Dasa Sila Mata in Thailand. Ten precepts um, in Sri Lanka. Uh, sorry, in Sri Lanka. Sorry, similar to the Dasa Sila Mata in Sri Lanka. And so it's a 10-precept order, but it isn't a, an official... It's kind of ambiguous. So it's not a seminary ordination. They call it Siladra Papaja, and, and, and the, the legal one in the, in the monastic system is called Samaneri Papaja. So it's kind of almost, but not quite. And, and it's, it's always this thing where it sort of looks like, but it isn't, and it kind of almost. And so that's why the England isn't up there. So the, in England, we'll hear later about it, but there's just the very beginnings of a, a bhikkhuni monastery, not, quite, not even the physical place yet, but a nun and people who are interested, just the very beginnings in England, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Great. Thank you. This is so interesting, and I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> But one thing I'm, I'm wondering about, or maybe I'm just not clear, so I understood initially there was ordination just by bhikkhus, then there was dual ordination by bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Is there such a thing as single ordination just by bhikkhunis? Mm. No, there isn't. So that's not in the system. So it's either bhikkhus or bhikkhunis, but there was never made an ordination that's just for bhikkhunis. And maybe that will be the next step. Let's see. It's, it's interesting bringing this into, into California, which is such a fertile ground and, and so much, uh, you know, tradition doesn't weigh very heavy over here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's see how things evolve. But that, that question comes up quite often. And is that because the Buddha specifically said bhikkhunis can't ordain alone? Or was it just sort of assumed that's too bananas to even think of, so he couldn't possibly have meant that? I would well, no, it's, it's very clearly it's said that he... They, bhikkhunis can ordain with bhikkhus or in the dual sangha. And I would say it's, it's because of the social context at that time that women always belonged to a man. So whether it's to your father or to your husband or to your brother. And if a woman didn't belong to a man, she was very vulnerable. So in effect, the bhikkhu sangha um, played the role of the husband or the father, or the, the, the one, the protector, in a way, of the, of the women. Um, you know, a woman without 
who isn't sort of doesn't belong to a man in that system at that time um, would either be very vulnerable or be a prostitute. You know, th those are the kind of there weren't many options to just be a single woman who wasn't connected with a man in some way. So it, I, I understand it as he he recognised the social need uh, as a as a what would be accepted by people and also what would protect the women from being abused, the nuns. And that's why we have those two. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't given that women can ordain women. And, and he was still pretty revolutionary. Yeah. So taken within the cultural context. Yeah. More questions? No. <laughs> okay. I have two questions about the meeting with the Dalai Lama. Could you explain what is meant by illegal research? It, illegal research? Or what was it? I missed Did it. I say illegal? No, I don't know what you said. That's um, my question. Thanks. I don't think I said illegal. No, I think it, what I was saying was that there was, there was research right by scholars from all around the world um, in all lineages. And, and, the, and the, the bhikkhuni at the end said, please, you know, all stones have been unturned. Please there's nothing left, there's no more left to investigate. This is, we've investigated everything. This is the, this is the result. So please, you know, anything, so you can say anything except it needs more research. Maybe that's what you heard. It needs more research. Anything but that. And then he actually said it needs more research. Yeah. <laughs> In his pre-written paper, it was like, oh, please, please. And he also said, you know, you think of me as the, as, uh, the living Buddha, but I'm not the living Buddha. I'm, I'm the Dalai Lama, I'm, I'm a monk, and I don't have the power to change this. And he pointed to the Vinaya experts in the Tibetan tradition who are holding their traditional view, and he more or less said, you have to wait until they die out off, and then maybe you'll get a chance to <laughs> ordain. But n what's happening now is His Holiness the Karmapa, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he is a lineage holder of one of the four main schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism, He's a younger man, he's in his 30s now, and he is much more proactive, even though it's not fast, but he is definitely making real steps to make, that, make it possible for women to take bhikkhuni ordination in the Tibetan tradition. A couple of years ago, I read a statement that I think was from the Dalai Lama that said that he could support it, but the commentary was his closest advisors could not, and he didn't want to split the Tibetan community. Could you comment, please? Not really. No, I don't have him to comment. I mean, I, I don't belong to the Tibetan tradition. So, you know, I think it's what I said. There are some who say it can't be done, it shouldn't be done. And there are some who say it should be done, it must be done. And I guess they are managing it in their way as carefully as possible. And I should say that actually at the conference itself, there was a group of uh, Tibetan nuns, uh, 10 precept nuns, who uh, suddenly stood up in, on the last evening and said... We don't want bhikkhuni ordination, because if we have bhikkhuni ordination, we, when we go back to our monasteries, the monks won't support us. They, won't, they don't want us. We won't have support from the lay people. We don't want it. We won't survive with it. And, we, and then the, the, the nun who was leading the, the, who was a Tibetan a nun in the Tibetan tradition, a German nun in the Tibetan tradition, who was leading the conference, she said, please, I understand, but please, out of compassion to, it, to the rest of us, you know, <laughs> don't, don't have that as a, as a 
you know, let, let us continue with this work. Because, but, and it was interesting because I was there with a group of Silidra. I was a Silidra at that time. And the senior Silidra who was with us, one of the founders, she turned to me and she said, here we are. We're, in as, as we're, we're close, most closely aligned to these Tibetan nuns who, you know, we were in the same situation. If we were to take full ordination, we could not go back to our community. We would be homeless, basically. So that's also part of the situation. It's, it's not just having the ordination, but having the support to live as a nun with the ordination. That's like the next level. Yeah. It's complicated. It's evolving. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's evolving. evolving. Um, I, I'm wondering how you um, make sure that the women are getting the highest quality training and education that the men get. Well, we, it's, I can't say that it's the same as what the men get, we, but it's, uh, we have the Vinaya, so we have the books of the Vinaya, which have been translated into English, thankfully. And uh, we, um, you know, we study in our monastery. We also collaborate with other bhikkhunis in other monasteries. So that we, the difference is for the men and for the women is the men, most men are coming into a very well-established tradition that's been going on for hundreds of years, thousands of years, unbroken. And they have elders and they have grandfathers, great-grandfathers, you know, enlightened masters in, in Buddhist countries. We don't have that. So we don't get, we can't enter in on the same level in a, in a way. But we have the Vinaya, we have the, the lineage that Mindy's just shown how it how it continued through China, Taiwan, and then back to Sri Lanka and now to us in the West. Um, and we have ourselves, we have many years of, of experience of training from our life as Siladara, which is a, an advantage. And I can say that um, the first generation uh, of most places, most pioneers are very, um, uh, I don't want to say eccentric, quite, quite uh, strong-minded you know, individuals. That's, that's, what, that's what pioneers are like, you know. And uh, often the first generation, they make a lot of, they, they make a lot of, they learn through making a lot of mistakes because how else can you learn when you're, it's new? So we were very fortunate in being second generation Siladara. So a lot, a lot of that ground had already been um, uh, tilled, let's say, by the, my, by the first generation of Siladara. And then we came in not at the same place that they came in. They'd done a lot of that work, and we came in not having to make those same mistakes, learn those same things. And then we came over here and took bhikkhuni ordination. So we've kind of got a... Um, on one level, there's a, there's a certain amount of understanding and knowledge that we've gained from our old elder sisters as Siladra, which we can bring into this. And then on another level, it's, the, it's all new. It's a different Vinaya, it's a different country, it's a different many things. So... Um, so we can't say we have the same because we don't have the same resources. We don't have the same material resources. We don't have the same access to teachers as the monks have. But um, we have access to the teachings, the practice, you know, like the, 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 the scriptures, the practice. Um, we have some time. We, have, we, we, we work really hard, honestly. All of the bikinis at this time are working very hard. Because there's a lot to do to just to just to establish a, a place where women can come and practice. So when people come in, they know that this is part of the deal. You know, we're at this phase now. It's 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 like this now, and you know, hopefully in in some future years it'll be more settled, and there'll be more of a just a, a, a 
a, a good holding for people to come into, which you'll see if you go to a Bayagiri monastery, for example, in Ukiah. Amazing place. I mean, that's kind of extremely good. <laughs> An amazing monastery, all perfectly set up, really senior monk, elders in Thailand, and you can come in and just be held to a large degree, do your chores and, and be held and be carried. And I often feel it's um, the, you know, the difference between coming in as a... Because I've also looked into my own... You know, like I had a calling to become a nun when I was 20. I knew when I was 20, I want to be a Buddhist nun. It was very clear. And then I've, I've watched, you know, my peers who are male, you know, they come in and, and uh, they basically, it's like stepping onto this big ocean liner. They step onto this great ocean liner that's going along and, and they have their, you know, they may be cleaning the deck or something. They have their little role to play. But that liner is going along whether they're on it or not and it's carrying them. And then for the women, <laughs> you, you kind of, you know, you have to, you have to, First of all, build the raft, and then you've got to you've got to row. You've got to row, you know, <laughs> and that's how it is. So people have right to just now. know that that that's what they're coming into. And in our community at the moment, we have um, we have two quite well. We have several, a few. All, all of the women I have to say are, are quite remarkable who are coming in. One of them is um, actually a scientist with a PhD from Yale, and uh, in her she's just about forty. And she has come in with this sense of, I, I can bring something good to this community. I can help shape this. I can benefit this. And she's very skilled, got really great practice, great faith. And it's like, this is what we need. We don't need people who are willing to go through the, the challenges of a startup, you could say, and the work that that takes with a, with a long-term vision of making something available to others in the future. And so our work really is balancing all of the work that needs to happen now and the teaching and the educating and all of that with having enough of a stable a stability in the monastery itself that people who come in don't, don't you know, they have enough holding. So it's different, but it's, uh, you know, people come in with that clarity. Yeah. And I think what's not different is the fact that with the image of the fourfold sangha and the laymen and laywomen who are willing to support them, that that, that support is still needed, mm-hmm. whether it's the bhikkhu sangha or the bhikkhuni sangha, that external support, financial, emotional, um, material support, is even more needed um, in order for them to row that boat. Um, so not for that not to be forget it or downplayed. Um, but as the layperson here, I feel like I need to remind us all about that too. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're going. Any more questions? I Sorry, have, I have a question. Uh-huh. Um, given that there was a kind of continuous lineage through the Taiwanese um, monastery, is there is there still in Taiwan a Theravada basis? that could be utilized in terms of that heritage or that lineage, mm-hmm. that, you know, um, grandmother, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to call it right. that. Not I'm really, curious. no. There isn't, there isn't a Theravada lineage in Thailand as such. What's happening now is, 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 is much more cross-cultural. So um, Taiwan is very much Mahayana. And, and so, you know, it was in, in China for all of those hundreds and hundreds of years, and it evolved in China uh, into the, 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 the what we now call Mahayana and with the Bodhisattva vow and then the robes have, have changed and many things, the scriptures, uh, different scriptures, some of them, to in the Theravada. So 
And then after a long, long time, that went to Taiwan. So that's what's taken root in Taiwan. But then what's happening now is that Taiwanese bhikkhunis, bhikshunis, travel to different countries. So they go to Burma, they practice with Burmese masters, meditation masters, and then they bring that back to Taiwan. So it's, it's, it's so much more complex, actually, than just like a, a lineage, which is a line. And so, you know, we can, I, I, my, for my experience, being in Taiwan was just really drawing on the, the strength and the confidence of those mature women, those, those nuns, those bhikkhunis. And, and for me, particularly seeing that, that it wasn't a fighting spirit, it was a, it was a confidence of just like, I belong. That was so beautiful. And then, uh, but what was somewhat lacking, not, not completely absent in Taiwan, but it wasn't very prominent, was the meditation practice. So, you know, young bhikkhunis go, they bring back teachers to, to teach meditation to the bhikkhunis in Taiwan. And so it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's all crossing over, yeah. You know, can I just make a suggestion? No, no, there is time. But we wanted to take a break and then come back and see if any more questions came up. Okay, okay after, you know, when you get a chance to talk to each other or go to the bathroom or have something to drink or something. Would that be okay if we start? Okay, thanks. Okay, so let's take a break till about 3.15.